So back when I was uh, younger, I used to run cross-country. I may have shared that with you at some point. I know it's kind of laughable now, um, but yes, I did used to run two miles continually, um, and my goal was always not to place last, which might not be a surprise to you. Um, <laughs> there's only two times I didn't place last, but I ran the race. I ran the race. And in today's passage, we see Lot running the race and finishing very poorly. He runs the race and he finishes very poorly. As we go through the text today, we're going to be using um, the format or the form that um, St. Peter actually gives to us in the epistle passage um, as an outline because... As Anglicans, we believe that the first thing you do is interpret Scripture through Scripture, right? And St. Peter does that for us uh, in his second epistle. So two weeks ago in this sermon series, we saw God justly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their utter wickedness, for their outcry of sin, Scripture tells us. And God's angels witnessed firsthand that after, firsthand and after lingering a while, and Lot and his wife and his two daughters are left with, left with him, rather, fleeing to Zor. So if you have your Bibles with you, could you open up to Genesis chapter 19, the, the last half of it? Father, could I use your bulletin? Thank you. Genesis chapter 19, beginning with verse 17. Again, it won't be in your bulletin today, but it is in Scripture, of course. So you'll recall we read the urging of him to flee, verse 26 of chapter 19. But we saw that his wife looked back. But Lot's wife looked back, it says, and she became a pillar of salt. We continue on with verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain. And he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. In our gospel from that week, we also saw our Lord Jesus Christ's warning to the disciples. Remember Lot's wife. And then it was followed with verse 33 of chapter 17. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. And so today we continue with a couple themes from that sermon. Number one, that we continue the theme that sin multiplies. That sin multiplies. That sin should never be underestimated. Number two, we continue the theme of the reality of God's judgment, that God's punishment needs to be taken seriously. But then to that we add, number three, the ability of God to save the godly, 
the ability of God to save the godly. And number four, a warning to the church about apostasy. Again, we see this all in St. Peter's second letter to the church. Let's go back to the first point, that sin multiplies. Even though Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction is complete, her wickedness lives on in Lot's faults and in Lot's daughters. And so we begin today's lesson in chapter 19 with verse 30. Now Lot went up to Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. The profile of Lot is worth reflecting on again. Like Abraham, he's a man of flaws, but unlike Abraham, he's a man who never turns to the Lord. Every little choice he makes leads him away from the Lord. And every time he ought to turn to the Lord to depend on him, he does not. Lot is righteous, St. Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 7 of his letter. But he's, but he's righteous only in the technical sense, that he remains undefiled. But he's far from virtuous. Scholar Gordon Wenham makes the observation that Lot stumbles around so much that it might be comical if it weren't so tragic. Just reflect with me for a moment on Lot's failings. He chooses the easy way when he parts with Abraham earlier in Genesis. He goes to the lush valley of Zor, thinking that will make him prosperous. He chooses then to move into the city of Sodom, a city of great wickedness whose wickedness was greatly known. He chooses to continue to live in Sodom, despite the fact that he knew it was wicked. Our lesson from Peter's epistle talks about this today. Open up with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. It's in the third lesson that David read for us this morning on page 3. And if he, that is God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Now we'll come back to the rest of that passage later. But notice, Lot is tormented in this choice of choosing to continue to live in Sodom. Fourthly, Lot allows the wickedness of Sodom to infiltrate his home. His daughters become engaged to men of Sodom because of this choice. He's allowed the wickedness of Sodom to lure his wife. He's abandoned, uh, he abandoned, perhaps most fundamentally, sixthly, the responsibility of a father to protect his wife and children. The responsibility of a father and husband. He does give a laudable defense of God's angels who come to him and offers, but then that gets twisted when he offers them his virgin daughters as a way to protect them. And then finally, seventhly, Lot is captured by his fear. He's weak, he's indecisive. 
And after arguing with the angels again and again, he es- he's es- escapes to escape to the city of Zor. He makes that argument. He ends up in the hills in the beginning of today's reading, we're told, because of his fear. Again, back in Genesis, he was afraid to live in Zor, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Lot is a pitiable person, to be sure. But again and again, he makes the wrong choice. And why? Because he does what he thinks right, is right in his own eyes. He does what looks good on the surface, but isn't good in fact. He takes what he thinks is the easy way out, without seeking God's will. And he keeps going right along, because he doesn't want to make waves or controversy. So St. Peter tells us that while he's inwardly distressed, he's not distressed enough to do anything about it. He's passive. Commentator and pastor Art Kent Hughes writes this. He says, Outwardly, Lot said little or nothing as he became a prominent man of the town of Sodom. Forthrightness would have jeopardized his standing. Lot had mastered the craft of turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to the sexual and social abuses of Sodom. He did not do them. He did not approve of them. But he did not speak out against them. His passivity as a father and husband turns to duplicity and then ends in cowardice. For that's what we call people who are ruled by fear. People who are cowards. Fear causes Lot to flee from Zor to the hills or from Sodom to the hills. His family watches this His lack of character hurts them and combines with Sodom's sensual sin multiplying in his daughters. Again, sin is underestimated here and multiplies greatly. The last and worst result of Lot's descent into vice and destruction is the destruction of his relationship with his daughters and his offspring. They take advantage of him of his drunkenness, and rather than turning to God for children, notice, following in his footsteps, they devise a wicked plan that includes the sin of incest, which is fitting of the city they just left, Sodom. Look at verses 31 through 33. And the firstborn daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. For there is not a man on earth who will come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come then, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that he may preserve, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The younger daughter followed the older daughter's lead and herself committed incest with her father. Next. In my scholarship this week, much is made of the fact that Lot and his daughters live in caves in the hills. Caves are places in the ancient world for burial. Makes a lot of sense if you think about it. 
If you're in a rocky place or a desert place, it's better to find a cave and put the dead in the cave and roll a stone in front of them than have to go through the difficulty of burying them. And that's not insignificant here. Because Lot descends, literally, physically, into a cave, into utter darkness with his daughters. And as he does that, he metaphorically descends into death. Despite being saved by God and delivered from death in Sodom, God delivers, has, for God has delivered him from the ungodly, he becomes an apostate. He finishes poorly. He turns away from God and literally descends into the ground. St. Peter talks about that as the fate of apostates. Again, in our third lesson, chapter 2, this time verse 20. Look at it with me if you would. It's on page 3. Speaking of apostates, St. Peter writes, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. St. Peter uses those two visual illustrations to underscore what the apostate does. Having been released, having been freed from these things, he turns back to them, goes back to eat his own vomit, just like a dog. Disgusting! Or to lie in his own filth, like a sow. And so we see Lot do that today. After being delivered and freed, he returns to a sin just as bad as homosexual acts, a sin of incest, perhaps worse. The last act recorded about Lot is this act of incest. He's too drunk to realize that he's committing this abomination with not one, but both of his daughters. Not once, but twice. Lot's final act recorded here is an act of utter passivity. Notice. An act of utter passivity. Laying there, wasted. Incest is condemned throughout Scripture as against the created order, as is homosexual action. It's unnatural, and it yields all kinds of problems. Most people in our culture today are still revolted by the idea of incest. But not long ago, they were revolted by the idea of homosexual sex, too. As unnatural perversions of sexuality. Just last week, after last week's sermon, one of our parishioners sent me an article from New York. And as we see things, complete, as we see things continue to descend, this article was illustrative of the point that sin multiplies. In New York State, there is a parent who has now sued the state 
because this parent wants to marry their offspring. Surprising? It shouldn't be. Sin multiplies. The trajectory has been set. Again, if consent among adults is the only bar you have and you've removed the end of marriage, if you've removed the God-given end for sexuality, this is what happens. Now, currently, incest is a third-degree felony in New York. But for how long? And currently, incest is a universal horror to our society. But for how long? There's not much of a step between incest and homosexual sex, according to Scripture. And that is outlined in this Genesis passage. This is a continuation of the depravity of Sodom that comes with Lot into this cave and into his daughters. Lot's Lot's daughters remain nameless. Most scholars believe that it's due to universal shame. Incest is condemned both in Hebrew, by the Hebrews in Leviticus chapter 20 and by the Sumerians in the Code of Hammurabi. But the children are named. Look at verse 36 through 38 in the Genesis 19 passage. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today, to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Amorites to this day. Now it's really interesting. The very names of these two, two sons talk about the sin of Lot. For the first, Moab is a play on words meaning from our father. And the second, Ben-Ami, is, means our father's kinsman or son of my people. And so this is set up for us as an illustration, as an example of depravity, as an example of the end that sin will multiply to. And yet, even in this darkness, there is redemption. God can redeem anything. And that's the good news of the gospel. For indeed he does. The second lesson for today is from the book of Ruth. Why do you suppose I included it? Did you note Ruth's heritage? Who is Ruth an offspring of? Look at verse 10 of Ruth chapter 4 on page 2. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, stop there. Ruth, the Moabite. Do you see God redeems Ruth? And in fact, in this passage, Boaz redeems Ruth as a kinsman redeemer, which we can't get into today, but that's a fascinating story on itself. Next, look at the gospel that Deacon Mark read. I don't generally schedule genealogies as gospel readings, but genealogies have something great to tell us. Look at the gospel reading today. Matthew chapter 1, particularly look at verse 5 and 6. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz 
was the father of Obed by Ruth. That's the Ruth of the other passage. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And whose genealogy is this? Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all mankind, comes forth and is, has in His lineage the sin. The sin of Lot. God redeems. You see, God has this strange, from our view, tendency to redeem the worst, to help those who are helpless, to spite Satan by bringing some of the most sinful, some of the most unrepentant, like St. Paul, to repentance and therefore to redemption and salvation. God redeems this lineage. And this redemption is a precious gift offered to all people. This is the gift that's been given to the church. It's been given to you and to me. Faithful interpretation of Scripture by Scripture. When we look at the third lesson, St. Peter is telling the church that God is able to save and deliver. Once again, the four things. The reality of God's judgment, the ability of God to save, and then finally, a warning to the church about apostasy. So friends, how do we take this in application today? Well, number one, don't kid yourself about God's judgment. Many people do mock and scoff, but God is not mocked and scoffed at in the end. He will come to judge the living and the dead, as we say in our creed. And God will condemn the ungodly. St. Peter tells us in that passage, false prophets, blasphemers, the sexually immoral, unrighteous, the lawless, the apostate. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10. through 10. It's all there. And then St. Peter makes the point that God did not spare the sinful angels in verse 4. The wicked pre-flood ancients of the world in verse 5. The sensually wicked of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. God is able to judge, and He will. However, God is also able to deliver and preserve for that's where St. Peter continues with his argument. God is able to preserve Noah and seven others. He delivers Lot and his family. And herein is the gospel, friends, that for Noah and Lot, their families were saved not because they were sinless. If you've read about Noah and Lot, you know that they're not sinless. But because they were, at some point at least, godly. The Greek word used by St. Peter is eusebis, which means pious or seeking God. St. Peter, therefore, uses Genesis 19, the story of Lot and his family escaping from Sodom and Gomorrah, as a demonstration of God's perfect judgment and God's ability to save through His grace. 
Look at Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 that we looked at just earlier. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. St. Peter means this as an encouragement, friends, that God will judge and is mighty to save. And the church needs to hear this. We need to hear this again and again and again. When you're faced with temptation, when you come up against those sins in your life which recur over and over again, those desires which themselves are sinful, God can deliver you from the time of trial. We say that and pray for it every time we say the Lord's Prayer. Did you know that? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray. This is what we're praying about. And we're putting our full trust in God's ability to deliver us from the time of trial. This is meant as an encouragement to the church that comes as part of your salvation, as a gift of God's Holy Spirit and the graces He instills in you and the holy angels that He surrounds you with. You are not alone in your struggles. You are not alone in your trials. You can turn from them and live. And so can all sinners. So can all sinners. So can the most wicked. And they have. But much like last week, there's a final warning here too. To the Christian notice. For St. Peter's writing to the church. The warning is this. Do not fall into apostasy. Do not fall into apostasy. What's apostasy, you might ask? Well, the Greek word is apostasia. It means to rebel or to abandon the faith. St. Peter puts it bluntly, as we already read in chapter, in verse 20, rather, of chapter 2. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them, and overcome, the last state become, that has become worse for them than the first. What's St. Peter saying? That it's worse for you to know the truth. It's worse for you to have come to salvation and then fall away from it as an apostate. And we're to guard against it. Look at the end of this passage, which actually ends in chapter 3. St. Peter sums it up this way. He says, This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Friends, today is no different than the first century. St. Peter's words speak to us just as they spoke to the church Catholic in the first century and through the rest of those centuries coming to us. Lot is an example of someone who begins well and ends poorly. He doesn't finish the, way, the race We don't know his final fate. Scripture doesn't tell us. 
but we do know his desecration. Peter is adamant that people not be led astray and fall into apostasies because he loves them. Because he loves them. Why is Peter so harsh? Why are the epistles so harsh? Why was my last sermon two weeks ago in this series seemingly so harsh? This is an act of love. This is an act of love. The truth shall set you free. Not your passions. Not your disoriented affections. The truth will set you free, says John 10. And Peter is adamant that people not be led astray. For, as if scholar and commentator Alan Ross says, if people crave the best of this world alone, with the world, along rather, with the world to come, they may receive neither. If, I'll say that again. If people crave the best of this world along with the world to come, they may receive neither. You can't have it both ways. So friends, let us finish well. Let us take this to heart. Let us turn to the Lord in all things. And when we're in trial, all the more so, turn to the Lord and ask for his deliverance, for he has promised to grant it. Do not underestimate the power of sin. Do not be found with those who scoff at God's ability to judge or save. Do not short-sell his ability to save you. And guard yourself and your brothers and sisters to your best of your ability from apostasy and from abandoning God. Those are our bap- part of our baptismal vows. May the Holy Spirit give us the grace to accomplish them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.